Okay, so uh, we're at the Institute of Modern Art in Brisbane. Um, we're here um, for many reasons. Um, we have a film called Infractions uh, that's showing the gallery space and it's featuring uh, First Nations campaigners on the front line of threats of shale gas fracking to 51% of the Northern Territory. But as the film shows, um, the front line is much bigger than that and extends right across the country. Uh, the unconventional gas industry was born in, in this state. So it's important that we keep having these conversations and connecting them back to here as well, which the film also does. I'm here today with um, Niola Savage and Juliary Ingra, Gurangarang elders from Yilam, Gladstone and Dan Robbins from the Protect Country Alliance. And we're, the panel is called Arts of the Frontline. And we're going to look at um, the connections between, you know, the beginning and the, and the present tense of the gas industry in Australia. I've come to this kind of from a point of view of cultural work and, you know, like what it means to be a cultural worker in this country when so much culture is being destroyed. Um, and I think we can also talk about, um, you know, maybe in the discussion, the kind of cultural work that mining companies do, for example. But first of all, um, I'll just read out the bio. So Niola Savage and Chiliri Ingra and their five siblings are descendants of Doc and Hector Johnson, who were active in the struggle for rights for Aboriginal and South Sea Islander people in Gladstone. The Johnsons were part of the first generation of Aboriginal teachers' aides in central Queensland, training in Melbourne at Deakin and Brisbane in midlife. And Jaliri is an artist who works with uh, natural dyes and, and fabrics while Niola uh, continues Indigenous education and liaison work in Warabinda um, and still is there. Dan Robbins has been an organiser against unconventional gas across Australia for more than a decade, currently working with the NT Project Country Alliance. Before that, uh, he was the Sydney coordinator with Lock the Gate, working on the Our Land, Our Water, Our Future campaign to stop invasive coal and gas projects across New South Wales. He's assisted with anti-fracking campaigns in Queensland's scenic rim area and in Western Australia. So it sounds like South Australia and Victoria are only missing from that, right? I think so. Um, and presented at the International Anti-Fracking Conference in Paris during the COP21 UN Climate Change Conference. So thank you so much, everyone, for being here. Um, did you want to say word, say a few words to kick us off um, from the occasion? Yeah. yeah. So we've so we've just driven down from Gladstone, yeah. yes. and this is I think it's worth mentioning, you know, that with the support of the Institute of Modern Art and Arts Queensland, this is actually the first time we've had the support to have a public conversation um, with Gurindran Ellis in in public in this, you know, on this issue that so is um, a very contemporary issue. So. Maybe you want to say something about that. First of all, I'd like to pay my respects to the Turbul and Jagra people on whose land we are conducting this interview today. And um, I guess it's just like listening to everybody's story and how we can sort of add ours to it. And the big picture is there, but we're just a small part of that. And I think that's what we're here for today. Um, so we had a plan to um, move between the locations that we are and also um, point to other um, other current um, struggles in other places. So to start with, I thought maybe we would ask Dan um, 
a little bit because he's had so much experience campaigning across different legal situations across different states, also from the very beginning of um, fracking on the East Coast. Maybe you could say something about, um, you know, connect this, this ongoing issue of solidarity on this um, industry um, to your kind of itinerary through the anti-fracking movement. So how, how you started working with First Nations um, on this issue and then where you kind of moved to. Yep. I'll just um, start by acknowledging that I'm meeting today on Larrakia land and uh, acknowledge elders past, present, future, and also acknowledge some of the leaders here of the Larrakia people like Arnie June Mills, who's basically been leading the fight against fracking here in Darwin and inspiring us all to keep going. And uh, I wouldn't have got involved in this um, 10 or so years ago if it wasn't for a Gomeroy man from Walgett called Tim Crichton who pulled me up in the street in Walgett one day at the front of the supermarket and told me I needed to start a group against fracking and that I should have a small meeting at the local RSL and bring um, indigenous leaders and um, non-indigenous farmers together. And we had a couple of meetings and from those meetings, we had phone calls from Chinchilla in Queensland and Dolby in Queensland. And uh, they, they told us to come up and visit. So I, I went up there and spent some time in Tara and uh, spent some time in Chinchilla and Dolby. And then uh, there was a young woman called Cody Twiner who took me up to Gladstone. And uh, we, so we followed that whole extraction of gas to the transportation through those pipelines all the way to Gladstone, uh, where we could see what was happening on Curtis Island and um, what was happening right there next to the reef, taking that gas and taking it offshore. It just shocked me. It really did shock me. And um, I went from there down to the scenic rim area in um, Queensland and near a little town called Kerry. And the police were putting farmers into police cars and driving them away. And uh, it was it was at that point that, yeah, we realised, and I realised, I guess, that this was like a, a cancer that was just growing right across Australia and, and it had to be stopped. Um, there was a number of us that took action that day and um, actually climbed up on top of their drill rigs and stayed there for 27 hours and said we weren't coming down and, until Arrow Energy left the area. And they did leave the area um, and didn't come back. And it was interesting returning to New South Wales and talking to um, not just Gomeroy people, but other Indigenous groups around New South Wales who had already been thinking about this for some time. This was in 2011, 2012, and, and they really uh, educated me on what we needed to do and, and how we had to start to bring people together. And I remember standing in places like Bogabri and watching the elders there, the Gomeroy elders speaking, and then a, a white farmer get up and say, we can't handle this. They're coming onto our land. They're invading our lands. They're taking over. They're not respecting us. And the Gomeroy elder turned to him and said, yeah, I think I know exactly how you feel. And so it was this, it was this um, coming together of different cultures. And it was, it was quite a beautiful moment, even though it was this horrible destruction. Some of the beautiful moments that came out of um, solidarity, you mentioned before, Rachel, just, but understanding and in places like Walgett, where segregation is not that long away, uh, it, was, it was quite um, amazing to see Indigenous and non-Indigenous people coming together and really understanding 
the process of colonization and, and what a lot of indigenous groups had been through over the past 200 years. And so for me and for many others, it was a, a big eye opener. And when we took a couple of indigenous uh, folks from Sydney across to Paris and it's for the anti-fracking uh, meetings during the climate talks, we met other indigenous people from around South America, from Africa, uh, from Thailand, who were all fighting fracking. And in Argentina, they were saying, look, it's Australian companies who are coming over to our lands. And so these connections were happening. It's, you realise that what's happening here on our lands and in our lands around Queensland and Northern Territory and um, on Mudborough land and Gurengaring lands, it's also happening to Indigenous people around the world. And I think some of the fights in Queensland and New South Wales against gas have really inspired people around the world. And uh, we were told that when we went to um, Paris and met with these other fracking groups that Australians had put up more of a fight than anything seen in North America. So uh, we have a lot to be proud of and there's still a lot to do, but uh, there's still a lot of hope. And I've just been this year, even though it's been a pandemic, just trying to bring Indigenous voices through music and art together to... Uh, to raise awareness and raise money for Indigenous uh, people in the Territory and try to just keep this fight going because it is a hard one. But there, as I said, there are some hopeful and beautiful moments that have come out of it. Yeah, maybe um, to pick up from there, um, there's a song from the Sandridge Band uh, that actually finishes the film. And of course, um, Ray Dixon somehow managed to release his first solo album during the middle of his um, anti-fracking organising last year. Um, and uh, the Johnsons have actually have a family band as well, and they we've been um, hearing many solidarity songs come out of their lounge rooms, um, you know, for many years. Um, I think this is what you know, like people have asked me, you know, what, what, how, if, how, how we're thinking about putting a film like this in an art in an art institution in Australia, and I think what's interesting even just when you move between Queensland and Northern Territory, um, the amount of crossover and, and collaboration that's happening between, um, uh, you know, Indigenous and non-Indigenous artists and curators and institutions um, is actually quite significant um, and also quite ordinary because people understand the stakes, not just, you know, of the situation, but also of that kind of cultural response to it. So I was just wondering, um, you know, do you, like, um, yeah, do you have something to, to say about that in terms of, um, you know, the, the work that is done to kind of build power through culture and how people like us contribute to that? Yeah. Yeah, well, I think one of the first things I've realised when I visit some of these um, gas fields, whether it's in New South Wales or Queensland or uh, in the Northern Territory, is the division that's caused by these companies. And when I was watching Infractions and I was listening to your interviews, you could hear about... Um, people talking about these white ants that come in and just divide people. But I found one of the few things that really brings people back together is music and arts. And so when I met with um, Ray Dimakari Dixon and uh, the first time I met him, I think we were playing guitar together over a Zoom meeting. And then he was talking about um, maybe calling up some of the guys from No Fixed Address, like Bart Willoughby or Joe Geyer in Queensland or talking to people um, like Bunna Laurie, who was down in, in Melbourne and South Australia. And then we called Shelley Morris, who was in Brisbane, and all these people just 
um, just by playing their music during the pandemic and bringing people, gave us more hope here in the territory. Um, I think it's a real antidote to that division that is caused by these companies because uh, we see them come in and they'll start pro-mining groups. Um, they'll take over local councils. That You've seen it all happen in Gladstone. They'll sponsor local creches and sporting teams. Um, but those those benefits that the, the, the industry kind of spruik, they go away pretty quickly when you see rents go up, when you see the amount of trucks passing through the towns and things like that. But uh, it really doesn't bring as many benefits um, as, they, as they tell us. And so it's by sharing these stories and getting together and whether it's through music or through painting or through other art forms, I feel like we can, um, change that dialogue about what mining really does to communities in Australia or around the world for that matter. It doesn't give those benefits. It actually tears us apart and the fabric of our societies and our communities is actually undone by these mining companies. And I think um, some of the painting I've seen coming out of Barolula and some of the songs from Ray Dimakari Dixon's album, Standing Strong, just, just say it so perfectly. And, and in a way that anyone can understand. And I think that's really important because in the environmental movement, people get a little bit too complex sometimes and we lose a lot of people, but uh, just the, the simplicity of some of the art that, that speaks really to, to a global audience is very powerful. I just love listening to you, Ben. I just love listening and, you know, nearly makes me cry. Yeah. I, I almost cry when I have to talk about this stuff as well, because it's just, it's very, very difficult. Once you, you meet people and have a connection with them and they sit you down around the fire and explain their connection to land. It's very hard not to have an emotional response to, to this campaign. I think. I was at a meeting um, then on um, Wednesday in Rockhampton. And uh, it was about um, our group, the PCCC, um, and uh, um, we were talking about uh, wind farms and they were getting and doing an Iliwa and going around to different places and talking to the, the four groups that make up the PCCC. And um, a little bit, Port Curtis, Port Curtis, Coral Coast. And there was one young fella, um, third time, 13 years old he was, and he um, he talked about um, you know coming to um, cut up our land. He said, "What about the animals? What about you know?" And it was a big shock to people in the in the um, the, group, the meeting that he was concerned about the animals, the native animals that are in that pathway where they're going to put all the uh, wind farms and. So, you know, there is, uh, with our community, um, people who are concerned about it. Now, with the gas coming through Gladstone, um, I was on that committee that um, signed on the dotted line for these, this gas to come through Gladstone. And um, I was uh, an applicant. And um, we didn't really realise what we were doing. And if we didn't do it, well... Compulsory acquisition, they said would happen because they just take it anyway because they wanted the, that area to be um, used to, for the um, guests to come in and go. 
in the big ships that come into Gladstone. And we call Gladstone Yalam. But, um, you know, uh, it was very difficult. You know, and um, years later, after I'd um, moved away and um, come back into Gladstone, I'd see all these, all the, all the harm done to, to the country. You know, there's big machines, you know, and getting ready for these um, pipelines to come through and getting the big, um, the jetties all fixed up. We're waiting for the big ships to come in. And, you know, we, we're at a loss to do anything because we've signed that on the dotted line. And we said, well, you can't do anything now because this is what the government wants. They want the money. And so um, you talked about um, dividing, dividing and conquer, you know, and that's, and the rich, you know, Aboriginal people who are on the committees, they're getting richer and the, the, the people on the, on the ground are, we don't know what's going on now, you know, because we, and we just go to these meetings at very few and far between. They just come to get our signature and say, yeah, yeah, we agree with this. And we were looking at the wind farms. But, you know, people ask me all the time because I, they know that I've been on those committees. And they said, what's happening? And I said, well, I don't know. Because we, it's just those people up here on the top who are on the big, the boards, the, um, the PBCs, the PBC, the other, or the trust. It's, you know, it, it's just divided the people. And the rich are getting richer, the black fellas, rich black fellas. Oh, there's some rich black fellas, I tell you. And they're getting richer. And the poor fellas are, you know, and because I, um, I live in Murabinda, a lot of our Gurangurang people have been moved away from their country, Tarun, or um, Mount Perry, all that area, they've moved to Murabinda. It's a big mob of us in Murabinda, Gurangurang people. We don't even get to do the cultural walks all those sorts of things. Nothing comes to where And uh, but this um, road show, they call it, was in Rockhampton, in Eidsfold, Gladstone, Bundaberg and Brisbane. Never came to Warrabinda. We had to hire a bus in Worry to go to Rocky for the meeting. You know, now, they're not looking at the, the hurt the people are going through. They've been taken away from their country. You know, um, and no information, we don't, oh no, they're, they're, they don't come to meetings. Because you're talking up here, mate, you know, it's not brought to a level where they can understand. You don't come out there. I've had one meeting this year, you know, I talk about this. I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a supporter of the Wurrabinda people and I speak up for their, for their, um, for their futures, for the kids, for us to be educated and that sort of thing. But, um, they don't worry about that. All they think about is this. And um, I'm, um, uh, when Rachel came to talk to us about it, and I thought, yeah, this is what we need. We need, and um, I think I talked about black and white, we've got to move together. We can't do it on our own, Dan. We can't. We need to work fellows with the, you know, up here. And we've got a bit of that too, but you know, we need to work together. You know, and I always give the example of um, the piano keyboard. I see you play a bit of music. You play the keyboard as well. Yeah, well, my my wife plays the keyboard. Yeah, well, if you just play the white keys, it's not a really good tune. You might get a little tune, but if you play the black keys, you might get a tune. But you need the black and the white to get good harmony. You can, you know, and it sounds great. 
and it's the same with us how we've got to work together and uh, you keep on going on um, this um you probably uh, know Gwenda Stanley do you she's Comeroy you know Gwenda That's, Stanley yeah I've heard her name mentioned oh, a few uh, times she's been up to um Rocky she's a good friend of my daughter's but um it's important that we do something about what's happening to our country you know and when I heard that young lad 13 years old talking about you know what they what's happening going to happen to the uh, animals well that's true the young people are thinking about it but where do they go to get their voices heard thank you yeah so maybe to connect um from there um you know like you were dealing with the native title situation um that i think the this an element of the film that is very um focused on legal education so that you know settlers understand the difference between different kinds of relationships you know first nation relationships to mining projects um what's been happening up there since the film was finished um Actually, since the film is finished, there's two things worth mentioning. The bunch of the people actually managed to get um, fracking licenses um, uh, outmoded in central Queensland recently, which was a huge victory under the um, free prior informed consent laws for the first time in Australia. Um, we've been chatting with Gemma Cronin and we'll continue that conversation. Um, the second thing is after you know in the aftermath of the film which was finished in 2019 there's been a federal election and there's been a lot of legal activism um just in the last couple of weeks which is also actually why it's been a bit hard to um have first nations voices on this conversation because they're actually just working so hard organizing so i think maybe um you could tell us a bit about what people have been up to um proactively around the legal situation that they're in, in at the front line of the beetaloo yeah, I think I've learned a lot more about law since I came up here and met with people like um, Eleanor Dixon. She sent me this book uh, by Irene Watson that I think you've already mentioned as well, which is all about Aboriginal law and how it's not being recognised under um, Commonwealth law. And they take that very, very seriously in places like Marlinger and and in the what the industry calls the Beetaloo Basin, but is uh, is 20 different countries, it's different nations with different cultures and different histories. And uh, they very rarely come together, all 20 of those nations, but they they did recently came together in a place called Daily Waters, which is a bit of a mining stronghold. And uh, they decided to break away from the Northern Lands Council and they voted those 20 representatives to, to break away from the Northern Lands Council and start their own prescribed body corporate, which would uh, be able to negotiate themselves as, as representatives from those nations with, with the resources companies. And, and they're, they're mostly representatives from communities who don't want fracking. And so it is going to be a big headache for the mining industry who for so long have just bypassed communities like you were saying before they haven't invited certain people to meetings they've just gone straight to government meetings and had the northern lands council there who are very well paid and very comfortable and said we want to drill on this land and then and then it's happened it's it's been like a fast track approach to getting mining uh, and and land access agreements so um people have seen this obviously for an, uh, many years I, I know one of you visited Baralula maybe in the 1970s. And I think since then, since that MacArthur River mine was built, people have been in the territory, indigenous people 
uh, Garawa people or Mudborough people have been thinking we need to have a different legal strategy. And so this is, yeah, they have, there's much um, that non-Indigenous people like me can learn from just going to these communities and seeing what is their legal approach. And, um, and so they've been very um, encouraging of me to get involved and read up uh, on these new legal strategies. And I think it, it gives us a lot of hope that um, there is so much knowledge in these communities and there's, they've been failed so many times by going down the, the path they're told to. I know in Queensland, I remember the government used to put out those long wind documents about how landholders should treat, how, sh how landholders should deal with the fracking industry. And it was just despicable. It was like, be nice, negotiate, listen to them, be on your best behavior. It's like, this is rubbish. Like we should give them the same respect they give us, which is very little. And um, I've always thought that you should treat people the same way you wish to be treated, but like they, they expect a lot, the, the, the mining industry, and they're not getting the same respect here in, in the Northern Territory when they enter communities, but they are doing that divide and rule. They'll come in, they'll find one or two young men usually and get them to sign on the dotted line, but it's, it's happening everywhere. And the money on offer is, it sounds great to begin with and it's, it ends up not as, not as good, but it's also happening in, um, in non-Indigenous places. I grew up in a tiny little town down the bottom of Australia called Crib Point and they're building an import terminal there. Like they're going to import gas from Japan into my old hometown. So they've built this huge jetty. They're gonna dredge the bay. They're gonna get rid of all those fishing spots that I grew up with. And the gas that we're selling to Japan, they're going to import it back and buy it and then sell it to Australians. So it seems insane. It is insane. And I think the good part about this campaign is we have so many arguments against these people because it's just completely irrational and um, it's only, it's inevitable that communities at some point are going to do exactly what they did in the Kerry Valley, stand up and say, we're gonna stop you at the point of production. We're not gonna let you, let you um, build these pipelines. We're not gonna let you build these wells. And from my experience, it only takes a handful of committed people to stop that stuff. But I think people are realizing that it's not just the indigenous communities, it's also non-indigenous communities. And, there was that quote from Queensland in the 70s. If you've come to help me, you're wasting your time. But if you have come with an understanding that your liberation is bound up with mine, then we can work together. And I think that was Leela Watson, um, Murray woman from Queensland in the 70s, who used to say that. And I think the more I work on these campaigns, the more I understand that quote, that um, it's not about helping communities, it's realizing that this is gonna to happen to all of us. This is yeah. happening, it happened a lot in the third world and they used to send Australian men over to Africa to mine their lands. And then they ran out of things to mine there and they're slowly moving down and moving into uh, places like Australia and they start in indigenous communities until they've used up all that and then they'll move closer. There's a, there's a gas field 60, 70 kilometers out, out of Sydney. Nobody really talks about it. There's a hundred fracked wells that Halliburton fracked in 1999 to 2004. And they've built a housing development, the biggest housing development in New South Wales, right on top of the gas field. And they offered Aboriginal families cheap home loans to buy houses in that area. And so my job in 2014 was to knock on people's doors and say, do you know you live in a gas field? And the mother would say, oh, no wonder my four kids are getting blood noses at the same time on the same day after swimming in these 
what we thought were dams, but they're, they're old water holding ponds um, full of toxic chemicals. So um, they've done very well to hide this stuff, but it's just a matter of time before it comes out. I think if it wasn't for that film Gasland that came out about 10 years ago, I don't think I would have realised what was going on, but um, it's, there's a lot of cracks appearing for this industry. Economically, they're not doing so well. So um, the legal strategy is one that I'm, I'm, I'm very um, interested in and I've been um, encouraged to, to get more involved in that. I was a teacher for a long time and I used to take my Indigenous students in a small bus to the government inquiries on fracking. And they were only 13, 14 year old kids, but they would ask questions like how many jobs are in this for Aboriginal people? And the government would say four or five or over a 20 year period, or maybe we can boost that to 40 if we try hard. And like, it doesn't take much to understand that this industry is not giving much back. It's destroying us. The more questions I asked as a teacher, I got a letter one day from the premier saying, uh, fracking is now a controversial issues in schools. Uh, please refer to the controversial issues in schools policy. And uh, yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy what they do. Uh, they, and uh, my principal sat me down and said, you're either a teacher or an activist. And so I had to resign. It's just, it's crazy what they do, but there's, um, there's definitely more avenues. And I think the legal avenue is something where we can really frustrate these companies and really push them back. And I look forward to, to taking that route. <coughs> Did you have something to say? Uh, <laughs> yeah, about this, you know, buying people. They give scholarships out, you know. So somebody got an arrow scholarship the other day, and yeah, feeling good. I've got this, and it's like, oh, to hear they are buying people again, you know. And it's sort of like all innocent. It's like yeah, it's sort of they just we'll give you this for so long, and. Uh, and we never look at the big picture. Like we're just ordinary people in the community, just had a little insight into different things. And I had a, a younger friend, a non-Indigenous girl, girl, young mother, and she was part of this uh, shut the gate, you know? And she had this dear old friend that's 82 and marching from down that uh, Southwest Queensland, right up to Gladstone. She was walking and oh, she yeah. said, uh, she was camping along the road. I said, fancy that, this old, older than me. And that's old. <laughs> and she still, I asked her the other day, I said, she's still helping in Queensland against the fracking. So I'd just take my hat off if I had one on. <laughs> you know, people like that. I said, I wouldn't sort of be going to do that. But I can do it in my own way, you know. How do we do it? How do we support all you fellas out there and, you know, this is a godsend to us. This is lady here. And, uh, <laughs> come all the way from Germany, you know. Back to her own hometown. We all live in the same town. And uh, it, it's like mind-blowing. Then you see all these documentaries about what they've done. And I feel sorry for those farmers. We used to say ourselves, well, they, they're putting up with what we put up with. You know, our people, we thrown off the land. But poisoning the water, the beautiful, the water, underground water, you know. And we have to eat that stuff that comes from out of South Queensland, you know, <coughs> whether it's cattle or wheat, well, wheat products and anything that they have, you know. 
then that's their livelihood. And I feel sorry for the farmers, of course I do feel very sorry for them. <coughs> that's why we have to work together. So I, maybe um, there's maybe I have two more questions. You might have more, um, but I was thinking, um, you know, like unfortunately, this you know this campaign continues, and um, this film is touring Australia during the pandemic, right? And it's kind of terrible and amazing timing in that sense. Um, I was wondering if you could give us a kind of, in a nutshell. Um, you know, what difference the COVID gas policy seems to be making um, in terms of what people were planning to be dealing with and what the current speculation around COVID era policy is around the gas developments? Yeah, so just before COVID hit, there was a big drop in the global oil price. And so fracking companies that were seeming like a good investment suddenly became a bad investment. And we've seen hundreds of fracking companies going bankrupt in the United States. Um, and then it was, it was a time of healing for a lot of people here in the territory because the fracking companies, once COVID hit, they just packed up and left. And I think one of the reasons they packed up and left is because the oil price was so low. So it was a good time for them to get out. If you ask the fracking companies, they would tell you, oh, we really cared about the health of people and we, we didn't want the fly-in, fly-out workers to jeopardise health. But um, either way, it was a great time um, visiting Ray Dimakari Dixon. He was just like, the birds that we haven't seen for a long time are coming back. Like the, the air feels cleaner. He was, he was very uh, happy with what was going on. But I did have a debate here in the territory when people were telling me it's over fracking's gone it's um it's not going to come back and i i i just said it, it's a commodity for them gas um it, the price of it goes up and down all the time and just because it's going down now in my mind i think it's going to go back up and and it, i i talked to some economists like um uh, down in new south wales and they were saying even if gas becomes uh, so costly for the companies and not very profitable, uh, the, the federal government, the Australian government can just give these gas companies uh, billions of dollars in um, investment and underwrite their projects and just allow them to go forward, even if they're not profitable, even if the companies uh, are in debt, even if the companies uh, are, are not selling the gas to Australians, they're sending it overseas. And a lot of people thought that wouldn't happen, but it looks like it is going to happen. So uh, the prime minister pulled together a team of advisors for the COVID recovery. Uh, and on that team is Andrew Liveris, who's been working with gas companies. He's still employed by the Saudi Arabian oil company. And, and, and the prime minister asked him, well, what should we do? And he said, well, we need more gas. We need to get more gas out of the ground. We need more pipelines. And then, so his plan here in the Territory is to, to get a huge amount of gas out of the centre of the Territory and then pipe it for 900 kilometres all the way to Darwin, where they'll make plastics, explosives and fertilisers, which people just don't want. And then they're, they're, I don't think they're going to allow that to happen. And the thing about a 900 kilometre pipeline is, for me, you've got 900 kilometres of opportunity of communities to stop that pipeline. And so... The last pipeline they built between Tennant Creek and Mount Isa, they didn't pass through so many communities, but this one, 
I've just come back from the Beagle Loop Basin from uh, last week and um, Eleanor Dixon was walking me around showing me the sacred sites that have been registered and I was showing her the map of the proposed pipeline and, and they're just cutting across the same piece of land. So they, there's going to be a, a big fight on their hands. I don't think the government fully appreciates um, that the Mudborough people have been fighting for a long time, that uh, they had the walk-offs in the 1970s when they walked off Newcastle Waters Station and they know how to organise themselves. They're very union-orientated, collective people. And uh, they're also very educated in the law and their own law and they've got their culture and their language very strong still. And so I think it's going to be a real fight uh, that the companies are going to struggle because as we've seen with Rio Tinto and those others, they don't, they don't like to look like they're not listening to Aboriginal people. They love to have that idea that they're, they're employing Aboriginal people. They've got Aboriginal people's faces in all of their ads and they're on TV and in our newspapers. And, um, but it's very shallow because when you get down to it, they're only talking to a, a small number of people who are well paid and the vast majority of Indigenous people are being left in the lurch. So um, that vast majority of Indigenous people here in the Territory is what they're going to have to look out for because um, these communities will be able to stop these pipelines when they build them. They'll be able to stop those trucks when they try to get in. And so, uh, yeah, it's the pipeline campaign is, is shaping up to be a big one um, right across the Territory. The federal government wants to use taxpayers' money, money that you or I pay to build two $1 billion pipelines across the territory. And uh, I think there's a very good argument and a very good strong campaign that can come out of that. Nobody should allow it to happen and hopefully we can stop them. Listening to you talk, I guess, you know, the question um, uh, comes up, you know, what, how does the rest of Australia kind of support your campaigns? Um, uh, while at the same time connecting to, you know, the local campaigns in, in their state, I guess. Yeah. yeah, well, the Don't Frack the Territory campaign is going strong and there's, there's a group um, fighting another pipeline from Alice Springs down to South Australia, from Marini to Moomba, and uh, they're called the Arid Lands Environment Centre and they're raising money at the moment to um, pay for somebody full-time to work on the campaign um, also, Don't Frack the Territory and Lock the Gate Alliance and others are doing, um, uh, making sure that uh, communities are ready. Uh, they're resourcing those communities with whatever they need and uh, helping them and, and giving them all the, all the help they need. So uh, there's also, I think, going to be a lot of leadership from um, the Mudborough people and from Alawa people who are, who are just going to probably when it, the time is right and when Indigenous people feel the time is right, they will call upon people from across Australia to come and help them out. And that's what we saw with the Jabaluka mine that was, uh, that was very successfully beaten back in the 1990s. Once Indigenous people make the decision, this is it, all our, all our avenues have been exhausted, we're calling upon people to come and help us. Uh, that's when I, I think uh, the campaign will, will really reach its peak and uh, but they're, they're much more patient than I am. <laughs> like I, um, patience is definitely a virtue. I've got a lot to learn about patience, but um, I think uh, I think that's inevitable that that will happen. That people will be called upon to come and help out, and 
And we've seen that with uh, New South Wales when communities were called to the Bentley blockade and I think 5,000 people showed up. I remember getting there, it was just an amazing sight to see 5,000 people camped out ready to stop one mining company. And the police, the New South Wales only had 500 to 1,000 police and there was 5,000 people and they just had to call off the operation and cancel the license of the mining company and tell them to leave the area. So uh, when you've got that critical mass of people, there's nothing governments can do about it. Um, so, and we've seen that happen time and time again with mining uh, infrastructure in Australia. And I think it's, it's very unique of Australians, uh, non-Indigenous and Indigenous to come together to stop these resources companies. And so I think we're in a good position to do it. Um, I'm, where I am living at the moment, I'm from Gladstone, you know, but uh, in Waterbindo, I know there's uh, people there concerned about the river that uh, we get our water from. And because uh, they've got the mines, been there for a few years, but they're starting new mines. And so the water from that river comes to Waterbindo. So um, they're concerned about how good the healthy that water is. And um, I know there's one fellow there in um, uh, Waterbinder who's been going to the meetings with the farmers and the people in um, Baralaba, um, they're concerned. So, um, you know, we've already got lots of um, uh, sickly people in Waterbinder. We've got lots of health issues and we don't need more. So um, um, he's started to bring the community together and we need to start standing up strong. And um, a lot of our people have uh, are very um, um, sit back and, but um, this, we've got to get the message out that, that we need to stand um, strong and start um, saying, um, telling the government, no, we don't want this, you know, because it's going to destroy our, um, the health. It's already where we've got the people on uh, dialysis in a small community, we've got we've got our own dialysis unit. You know, there's probably ten, ten to or probably fifteen people that are on dialysis, which you know, and um, it's been like that for years and years. And we don't need extra health problems, you know, with the um, this water. So um, you know, I'm I'm happy to um, do um, whatever to support. You know, I do to support um, this young fellow who's doing all the work at the moment. But we need to have education Probably You're talking about the schools. We need it in the schools to talk to the, in the high schools about our, our problem that's how it could arise within in the future. And um, you know, we're, we're teachers too, um, Dan. Yeah. We've been there. I'm just taking up my, at my old age of 72, I'm taking <laughs> up another position in the next week or so um, oh, no. been to school. <laughs> but I'm going to be a consultant and a cultural advisor yep. so you know within that I can do a mm. lot of stuff you know talk about um, what's happening um, to our country yeah so um, um, I'll be glad to I don't think I might start one day and they'll sack me because I'm talking about fracking but I need to do it you know and we need to make the community aware of what could happen if we allow if we don't get up and, and, and resist all this 
stuff that's coming in. And I know there's a lot of people in, in Aurora that um, work on the mines yeah. and it's the men are bringing in an income for their families. But in the long term, it's going to be disaster, mm. disastrous for our people. Yeah. Yeah, I think we can still teach and educate. Like I, I went back into teaching after resigning from it uh, in New South Wales and taught for a few years here in Darwin. And um, the kids would come up to me every now and then and say, we hear that you're into this anti-fracking business. And <laughs> my dad, and they'd say, well, my dad works in the mining industry. And I said, well, yeah, I said a lot of my friends from high school do too. Like a lot of my friends from high school actually ended up in Gladstone working on the gas there. And, um, and they were on these huge pay packets but it really affected their families. Oh, you know, it, yeah. it was one, they'd have one week with their families and three weeks in Gladstone. And I was at their barbecues at Christmas time and the kids didn't even know their father's faces because they, yeah. they spent more time in Gladstone. But I think um, teaching in schools, yeah, when the kids did come to me and ask me questions, I'd just say, look, seek out the evidence yourself and make up your own minds. And in high school, kids started doing their projects on it. And I remember there was a, a young man from the King's School in Sydney who his mother contacted me and he'd, he'd done this huge project on fracking and was talking to all the kids about it in year nine at, at a really top school in Sydney. Yeah. And um, his teacher was there with the Bunsen burner with flames coming out of it and everything. <laughs> and uh, he'd, just, he'd spent a whole six months on this project. So, and then watching in, when I moved to Darwin, the, the climate rallies that the high school kids are having went from 400 people to 2000 people. And, uh, and so there are, there is a lot of interest. And yeah. when I'm, and I find when I'm teaching, I don't do usually say things. I, I, I usually ask questions rather than give the kids my, my thoughts. But uh, when I ask them questions about climate change and things like that, they're very clear on it. They're saying yeah. the more pollution we put into the air, the hotter it gets. And then all the trees and the animals can't survive if it gets too hot, neither can we. It's a no-brainer for them. It's not until like a few years later when people are in jobs and things that they start to kind of question science. And, but in high schools, there's a very, well, a climate change denier in high school would just be called a, a failed science student, you know. So the kids, the kids have got a very clear idea of what's wrong and what's right. And so I think there's a lot of hope there as well in, in that, that younger Australians and, and what they can do to stop these companies. As uh, people that live in Gladstone, Yellow, well, I've been staying down there on the waterfront with my daughter who lives down there. Yeah. Uh, she's a truck driver in the mines. <laughs> so I have been staying down there and I see the big ships coming in. You just look out there and I can take photos. And the biggest ships are coming in. You know, when it's a, it's a gas ship, yeah. they're big. And Greg's son is, works on the tugs. He said that they're so big. They're sort of pulling the tugs underneath. Oh. And, they, yeah. and, and that's how big they are. He said it's very dangerous. Yeah. And uh, we see them coming in and out, in and out of the harbour. And it's just there. It's a place where we grew up on that beach, you know, looking out. They had ships coming in, but not this big. Those big ships, ships are monstrous. Yeah. They are big. Yeah. And that's, they, sure. that's the result. And we see the, like the big Bunsen burner over on the island. We see yeah. that land coming up. And yeah. it wasn't like when we were kids, say. Yeah. No. Until the alumina plant came. And you saw that on the, on the uh, 
school where we grew up. But now we've got an, another story, you know. My great grand, our great grandkids are watching that now. Mm -hmm. I'll say, what's that? What's that now? No, what's that? So that's a big guest ship out there, you know. Look at lovely big you know. <laughs> you know? And that's the culmination of all this destruction of the land, you know, and the people's livelihoods and the and our beautiful Australian environment, you know. It's like it's like the end of our world, sort of more or less, because the, the people can't survive. Mm. And as the old said, the sickness and, and mental sickness, you know. A lot of those farmers would have, I think a lot of them have committed suicide, taken their lives, mm. couldn't handle it anymore because you've got all these forces over you telling you you can't fight against it. It heartens me to see that they've turned them away, you know, and you've yeah. got to have a lot of guts to get out there and stand up and sleep out there and stand up for what is right, you know. Mm. And and, and uh, Australia can... Uh, come together for things like this, you know, all of us together, no matter what colour we are. We're not stupid, eh? And the government's all over our eyes. There won't be any wool to pull over our eyes because uh, we're going to kill all the country with the sheep are. That's a good one, yeah? No, I'll pay that one. <laughs> yeah, I think... Yeah, sorry. Um, <laughs> it's happening everywhere. And like, uh, there was so many, I think when I got to Gladstone, it reminded me of my town in Crib Point because I grew up with um, the flames of Esso, a big petrol, a big shell, shell would be burning off in the, in the distance. Crib Point. Crib Point. It's this tiny little town called Crib Point. And, uh, what state is that? What's that? What state? In Victoria. Victoria. It's down near like um, Mornington Peninsula, like uh, Phillip Island, French Island. And there's this little town called Crib Point. Yeah. And so Shell Petroleum, I think, had a big petro storage unit there that they built. Um, and so we'd sneak in there as kids and it was all empty by the time. So there was beautiful kind of bushland on one side, koalas and possums and, and a whole range of really beautiful uh, fishing spots and then you just had this shell petroleum had just built this um this huge storage unit and we'd sneak in there as kids and it was like we'd sneak in and open this big uh this big door and go in and it was like the size of a football field but it was a storage unit for petrol that it hadn't been used and i just when i moved to walgett a lot of the gomeroy people used to say when you have sick land you have sick people like and um I think there's there's more and more kind of non-Indigenous people realising the truth behind that. There's so many pathways for sick sick environments to get get into our to, into our into our bodies, and uh, so whether that's through soil or through air, um, it's it's very true. And so uh, I think more people are starting to realise that and starting to realise that it's that the environmental damage is really going to affect us as communities and societies and, and people are hopefully going to fight back against that. But the, the companies are very good at denying the science, aren't they? Like they've sponsored those hospitals in Gladstone and they'll do that study about cancer in Gladstone and they'll say, well, not just taking Gladstone, but it's taking Gladstone in the wider area. And then we realise that the cancer rates are actually much smaller than we thought. So I remember when I was in Gladstone, just seeing 
photos of fish with the red eyes and the, and the different things that had happened from all those heavy metals being dredged up. And just reminded me of my town of where I was from and how, how those companies had come in and, and now they're coming back again to destroy the, and, and what happens underwater is, is yeah, something that I haven't even began to fathom yet. haven't even begun to understand because here in the territory, the government's saying now they want to do deep sea mining which is um, the same as what we see on the land. They're just going to do it under the water. And that really troubles me because I think that's, that's offshore. It's going to be much harder for us to stop. So I'm, I'm paying a lot of attention to that at the moment. But um, we do have the ability to stop this stuff on the land. And it is very close to our communities. And so there's a lot of benefits in stopping these mining companies. And there's a lot of health benefits, there's a lot of environmental benefits, and I'd argue economic benefits in moving away from fossil fuels. And, and I hope that renewables will be better. But um, look, I'm just as worried about some of the renewables companies by having these huge projects um, that, that uh, they're not consulting with indigenous people again. So hopefully we can learn our lessons when we move away from coal and gas to doing things a little bit better and doing things with community and health and environment in mind, I think it's really important, not just to move to renewables, but to do it in a way that is safer for communities. What do you think about wind farms? Dan? I don't mind wind farms. I used to drive past, I went to spend a bit of time in different countries and I, th I thought the wind farms could uh, I know Donald Trump doesn't like them he says that they kill birds or something but uh, I've, I've found that wind farms have been okay when I visited communities the coal industry had had funded a bunch of uh, different groups to be very anti-wind and they call themselves the landscape guardians and they'd say you can't destroy our landscape I personally think that they're much better than and a lot of the other options that we have in front of us. What do you think? Yeah, well, we had a, um, a video about them, you know, and where they were going to put on, on the Calide Range outside uh, between Villa, Balala and uh, Gladstone. So we, um, you know, I thought, no, this is a better way to go, you know, because, you know, I've seen the trains coming into Gladstone for the last 50, 60 years. Mm. And I think, you know, they're gonna, there's going to be a big hole in, in the middle of Australia and we'll all go into it because the amount of coal that's been brought in on the trains and, you know, years ago they were taking 30, 30 trains. My brother-in-law was a train driver. Yep. He told me that there'd be 30 trains a day, you know. It might have gone down to 20 trains a day now, but they're still getting, where's all this coal coming from? You know, and where we live, we were um, bred up in um, on Barney Point. The, the trains, the coal used to come down to the uh, wharf, and you know, all that dust used to you know fly around. And we had the coal dust on this side, and we had now we've got the QAL on one side. Mm. You know, so, and uh, about 30 years ago, there was a report in the Brisbane paper that people were dying. It's a high number of people dying in Gladstone with cancer. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, there was one report, it never, never seen it again. They stopped yeah. it. Yeah, so there was something fishy about that. Yeah. yeah. And if you, 
if you look at the decision makers, uh, like the prime minister and others where they work and you go for a drive, all you see is wind farms because it's the safest, cleanest. So they wouldn't put it anywhere near themselves. No, if you go, no. you go into North Sydney where they all live, there's all solar panels on top of their homes. And if you go to where they drive to work, it's just wind farm after wind farm. But it's those sacrifice zones where the rest of us grew up and we live. Uh, that's where they put the dirty fossil fuels. Um, yeah. The only good thing about living near dirty fossil fuels is it breeds really good environmental activists, I've found. <laughs> <laughs> I was... Uh... Um, when we were making, actually, I tried to make a few films before we actually made this film and failed often, but um, I remember one, one time I was driving around the factories in Busden and I didn't really know what kind of film I was making, but I was just filming, the, you know, the sheer combination of factories that added up to that dredge spoil in the, in the, in the ocean. And uh, we got a phone call from, from the police, my uncle did, um, and he said, what, you know, what are you, what are you driving around Gus and looking at all the factories for? And he said, oh, that's not me. That's my niece. And she'll be back at dinner time. <laughs> they, they sent three different police, you know, over the space of the afternoon. And then by the evening, it was the constable was visiting the house. And I was just sitting there with a pipe. I was trying, I was going through the photos and trying to find images of, um, you know, like my grandfather was a union organizer and lots of those construction sites. And I was just trying to kind of get any kind of um, visual material that we had and he, he kind of walked in and he said, what are you, what are you doing? <laughs> and I just made this like, you know, the, the artist card and I was like, oh, I'm just so interested in all the men in my family that were actually, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, but it is, you know, such a colonial patriarchal in, you know, space where like, that it's not the first thing they think of that you would even be an environmental activist. And they actually asked me um, for security purposes, they asked me if I was a Muslim rather yeah. than rather than if I was <laughs> so, yeah, that's the securitized yeah. culture of oh, yeah. um, um, I found that really interesting. Um, but yeah, yeah. Uh, but I, I could talk, we can talk for a, <laughs> I wonder if you have any questions for um, Niela and um, Juliari or if you have any vice versa. Um, just what's it like kind of organizing in the place you live? Because I guess, for me, like I, I'm almost too scared to go back to my hometown and because and the voices are so loud against me sometimes, <laughs> like a lot of my friends, how can I talk out against them? They've got four kids, they need the money and I'm there shouting like we can't, don't build this terminal. Like yeah. um, I just really respect people who are still in the, and can do it. And so what's it like? Is it difficult to be a voice for environment when people rely so heavily on those industries? Yeah, I think it is because if we're speaking against it and we're all fighting for jobs for our people, you know, oh, we're going to get a lot of jobs, you know. And you know, when I say to the, <laughs> these companies, I said, when our kids haven't got jobs, where do they come for money? To the old grandmothers. <laughs> then we're, we're broke then, you know, because we're helping them. Mm. They haven't got a job. And they say, why can't I get a job? This is our country here. They said they're going to give us jobs. Oh, yeah. We could never get jobs on the island. There was people coming from out of town, you know, all over Australia, overseas, New yeah. Zealand, coming to Gladstone, get the big paid jobs. We couldn't, we couldn't get jobs around people. Probably a handful got jobs on the island. And there was, a, you know, at least 50, 60, oh, maybe even 100 people who couldn't get jobs there. Because, you know, um, I told you that I was on that committee, I was an applicant, 
And we, um, when we signed, you know, my, I wanted jobs for our people. You know, mm. that's why I signed. We wanted jobs for our people. Yeah. But then they handed the, um, the, um, the employment to uh, Bechtel. Now, Bechtel, they um, employed who they wanted to employ. They didn't consult with us about who. We had two workers in there. Yeah. Who were people who, um, I don't know what they did, really. You know, and uh, they used to, when I used to question them, we went a few times, eh? We went to the head of Bechtel. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> question yeah. them. Really. Yeah, that's our older sister also. And, you know, we yeah. couldn't get um, any satisfaction from them. They were just telling us, to, just talking, 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 mm. you know. And, you know, when, you, when they finish talking, you forget the question you asked them. Mm. Because they talk so much, you know, mm. and they're big flash words. Yeah. And you don't want to be fighting all the time. We think they should have a bit of respect for us and listen to us when we're talking. You yeah. know, um, we were fighting for our people, our young ones, to get jobs. And as, you know, Delirious says, you know, if they don't have jobs, they come, you know, looking for money off us, mm. which is wrong, which is yeah. wrong. You know, if they had a job, you know, I, I always talk to them about, you know, um, up in, um, uh, up north Queensland, up in the Cape, um, where Rio Tinto is, what the, we t had the, uh, I used to run a careers market in Gladstone, and then uh, this fella come down from up there, um, and he talked about how they employed the people up in that, what's the name of that place where Rio? Weeper. Weeper. Yeah. In Weeper. Yeah. And um, how he went out six months before, talked to the people, if you want a job, you've got to get clean, you mm. know, and I'll come back in three months' time and see how you go on. Yep. You start that job, be clean. And I suggested to them in Gladstone to do that. Mm. But, you know, it's a good way to get our people ready, prepare them if they really want a job, but they never supported me in that, you know, but... If they're really concerned and eager to employ our people, you know, listen to what we're, what we're saying and employ us to be part of that, you mm. know, because the white fellas, you won't do it on your own. You won't do it on you. Get us in with you and we'll work together. And we always say that, you know, it's not that we hate the white fellas. No, it's not only about having one. It's about getting our people ready for these jobs. Yeah. You know, and um, it never happened. We've suggested so many things to them they never listen to us mm. never ever listen so we go us. against them now yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the way they the way they treat the workers is not so great either like a lot of my friends that went to gladstone they yeah. said there was a lot, a lot of drug problems among the workers yeah. and then oh, yeah. and they and they brought those problems then back with to their families and uh but also just uh, the amount of suicides that we hear on mining um, projects here in the territory is really horrible um it was it was really big at an offshore oil rig just here in the last few years and um i, I talked to a young guy in queensland who was working in chinchilla and his friend committed suicide on the site or and um and then they just kind of ship him off and, and they have people have to keep working and it's just it's, there's a, and if someone's died during like a workplace injury sometimes they'll all have to sign an agreement to say it's not the company's fault it's it's, yeah, yeah. it's either the other workers fault which is yeah. like put, puts yeah. them in a very bad mental state or yeah. it's just 
you you have signed on the dotted line and so it's all of us are signing on the dotted line for these things like my community has signed off to to have this big gas thing the workers are signing off their rights and so yeah it's we're all in very tough positions when we're on these individual contracts but i think if we can come together and tell stories like we're doing now and realize that no it's happening to all of us and kind of get together and plan of how we can work together rather than all sign these little disclosure agreements um uh, that will be much stronger because that's how they're getting to the farmers they're all having to sign these little disclosure agreements which means you can't even talk to the person on the farm next door you can't ask him how much he's getting paid or how much she's getting paid so that yeah, we really got to get past that division and i think conversations like this and and different documentaries like rachel has made where people are just telling stories is actually very powerful and yeah. uh, I, I would argue that's the most powerful thing that, that, that without that documentary Gasland, I don't think there would be a anti-fracking movement in Australia today. I think the power of film and the power of people just telling stories as Indigenous people have for since time immemorial, that, that telling stories is, it can be fun, it can be really therapeutic, but it can be very, very powerful. Yeah, I was just was thinking when you were talking about um, you know, the, the hometown organising. Like, I haven't lived in Glasgow since my father died, and that just happened to coincide with the, with the beginning of the gas industry. So that, you know, flying out and then flying back in, you have a lot more objectivity around what is actually happening because, you, yeah. you know, you can zoom out and then zoom back in. But um, I think, you know, like, uh, I think this film was also <coughs> made possible by, by the fact that my grandfather, father you know knows the grand grand um, elders and you know was a union organizer um, and the way that I think about Gladstone it's not just my hometown I think it's you know it's an underdocumented space in the history of global capitalism and, and you know that the relationship between land rights and um, you know corporate deregulation um, or the deregulation of labor is such a big story there that has never really been documented and you can say so much um, you know, about um, that kind of, I wouldn't say illiteracy, but we're losing, <coughs> we're losing the kind of more accurate stories about, you know, previous generations of um, organising, you know, control mm. lines. And I think, um, you know, I think if anything, telling those corporate histories that actually relate to successful campaigns and teaching people about what a corporation actually is and what's its agency and how it gets away with what it does helps to kind of demystify also, um, you know, all of the silly symbolic politics and branding that go into people's ambivalence around whether, whether what's actually going on and whether they can do something about it. So, yeah. yeah. And sharing stories, we find out all the things we have in common. My, my father was a union organiser as well. And he um, used to work at the steel mill and, and run strikes at the steel mill. And mum would work in the offices and tell him when she'd get home, can you stop calling strikes? Because it's, it's upsetting everybody. <laughs> and so it was a funny kind of way to grow up. But I, and when I went to visit Ray Dimakari Dixon, he, he said they were a really strong union family as well. And so um, I think there's a lot of lessons we can learn from the organising that, that people did. When I was in Walgett, Harry Green, the older um, Gomeroy man, used to tell me about the Shearer's union strikes. And he, I, I would just sit for hours with him. On his front porch and he would say these are really important lessons because aboriginal people have been involved in these in these strikes and these walk-offs and these things 
um, that, that could be useful for you if you want to stop fracking. It's like maybe talk to the workers, indigenous and non-indigenous workers and tell them it's not good for them. And, and eventually might, you might have these walk-offs. So I don't know, there's, there's lots of lessons we can take from, from our own families and our own histories. And, um, but I just think if we don't get together and talk like this, we're missing out on a lot because the people who, who are out there probably don't hear a lot of these stories um, of what's going on and, and what we're dealing with in our communities. And I just have so much admiration for you guys that are, that are there in Gladstone and doing that. And um, my, my friend Cody Twiner, who grew up in Gladstone, she's now doing her research in ecofeminism and music and she's a performer and she goes out and plays music and also writes about how music can change um, people's environmental consciousness. So there must be a lot of inspiring women there from Gladstone. I'm glad I get to meet you. Should like to meet <laughs> yeah, yeah, you should. Her family still lives there in Gladstone. I think she might be there at the moment. I'll have to put you in touch. I don't have many more things to say. No. It's really a real pleasure to um, connect up like this. We actually haven't met either because I don't know why, but I've met a lot of country people when I was making the film and you weren't actually one of them. So it's a total pleasure to meet this way under COVID conditions. Um, and yeah, I look forward to um, catching up um, when we bring the film back to the territory. We're going to be in Alice Springs, um, aren't we, in uh, the 5th of November. And yep. then um, Darwin after that would be in collaboration with the Environment Centre and um, connect up with Gadrian as well on the way and Rain. Great. Well, I'd love to come over to Gladstone sometime. I saw your borders just opened today from New South Wales to Queensland, I think. But I don't know if we can yet. I don't know if we can travel from um, Territory to Queensland. And where are you now? I'm in, Darwin. I'm in Darwin. Yeah. Yeah. I'd love to come over and visit. Casino people to come over, eh? I don't know. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <coughs> yeah. Well, as soon as I can, I'd love to come over and meet you guys there. That'd be fantastic. And I'll see you soon in Darwin, Rachel. You'll be here next month or this next month? Yeah, the first screen is on the 18th, but I'll be there before then. Awesome. Well, Look thanks forward. so Thanks so much. It was lovely to meet you all. And um, I love listening to you. Yeah. Well, thanks for doing what you're doing there and um, hopefully we can keep keep talking to each other and sharing stories because um, the companies here, their favourite sentence at the moment is, we need to get into those Aboriginal communities in the territory where nobody knows anything about fracking and tell them how good it is. So that's their current strategy. So um, I think you guys have a wealth of knowledge to kind of talk to those communities and say... <laughs> The, the promises they make are not as good as the reality. Yeah. yeah. There's a song that goes like that, promises you make. You know, I think Archie. Archie, Archie Roach. Roach. Mm -hmm. I love Archie Roach. Took the children away, you know. Those oh, yeah. Songs. Yeah, they're powerful songs. Yeah. You know, yeah. They promised, you know, even when I was on that, um, the uh, you know, the promises they made to us. Oh, they're so happy to sit here with us and buy us lunch and oh, take us out for dinner. And you've signed, the, signed on the, the earlier one. Never seen them again. Never seen them again. We were duped. 
Speaking of music, um, we were talking before, we've actually recorded a lot of the <laughs> Grand Grand um, band, do you have a name for that? No, just, just everyone in the family. Um, so we might actually add one of the songs um, to, the, to this um, conversation to kind of close it off we'll and send you a... Send you a song. <laughs> Well, we'd yeah. love to we'd love to get you to play live on the Don't Frack the Territory thing. Sometimes I just do these Zoom calls and get different people to play music live, and it goes out to our twenty five thousand supporters, and it's also seen by a lot of communities here in the territory. And the point of those concerts is just to um, keep up hope and inspiration. So, um, I'd love we'll to, to just have you. Yeah, we've got to write a new song. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that'd be fantastic. <laughs> okay, thank you, Dave. Thank Dave, you so much. See you guys. Have a good day. Bye.